Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. medical device industry is built on continuous improvement. And that's not just for devices. It means for the people building those devices. Greenlight Guru Academy is the ultimate resource to learn and grow for medical device professionals. From quick practical lessons to comprehensive certifications, you'll learn everything you need to know to keep up with the medical device industry. Visit www.greenlight.guru forward slash academy today to start learning the skills for tomorrow. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we're going to be talking with Michelle Lott. Michelle Lott is the founder and principal of Lean RAQ8, Lean Raka. She and her team have supported over 100 companies with regulatory strategy, regulatory submissions, quality systems, compliance, due diligence, technical support services, and what she calls grief counseling, because dealing with regulators can be emotionally draining. Her clients delegate those things to her so they can focus on winning in the marketplace. Michelle has served a four-year term on the FDA Good Vice, Good Manufacturing Practices Advisory Committee, otherwise known as the DGMP. As we all know, we love our acronyms. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from Troy State University and is a certified executive leader in regulatory affairs from RAPS and the Kellogg University. Today, we talked a little bit about the differences in the U.S. versus the EU and the regulatory pathways and some of the pros and cons and some of the uh, just the hurdles that you'll have to go through with each one of these different markets. Hope you enjoy today's episode. See you later. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne, your co-host. Uh, with us today is John Spear, the host of the podcast, as well as the founder of Greenlight Guru. And uh, also with us today is Michelle Lott. We're going to be talking about some of the challenges of uh, of the U.S. versus EU and your go-to-market strategy, how that impacts um, investments and so forth. Um, but before we get into that, Michelle also has a podcast. Would you want to talk about it just briefly before we, I mean, so we don't sure. forget? <laughs> yep. So my own podcast is RAQA Today. Um, and you can find me, you know, Apple, Spotify, you know, all the places where you, you get your podcasts. I see you on LinkedIn sometimes. You make Maybe complex, maybe not complex. I don't know. It just depends on your perspective. Different uh, regulatory topics, really kind of fun. And I, I, I assume you probably do the same with the, the podcast. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I tell um, when I get new customers and they're like, well, why should we work with you? And I say, well, you know, it's, it's easy to find a competent regulatory person, but how many are you going to A, enjoy working with? And B, are going to be able to make you laugh when you probably really feel like crying. <laughs> I mean, Michelle, my, um, I mean, we've known each other for a few years, but, but my favorite thing that you did was leading up into the, to the EU MDR go live and you had the T minus, yeah. you know, X number of days and all these sorts of things. And, and I think it was super helpful because I think a lot of people sat on the sidelines thinking, oh, I got plenty of time, blah, blah, blah. Are they going to delay it? Are they going to push it? And of course they did because of COVID, but but you know, without that reminder, I, I have to wonder how many folks uh, would have been struggling, you know, with their yeah. EU MDR uh, adoption. Well, and you know, so I had the T minus going, but now I have the T plus going because I feel like people are still uh, in yeah. denial, you know, in two separate ways. Like the the first is the people who have certificates that expire in twenty uh, May of twenty four. 
and they they think that oh I, they still have enough time to get their certificates reissued and it's like okay if you're if your technical documentation isn't turned in in full in December, you're not going to, you know, have a continuity of your CE mark uh, in any form. And then there's still people. I um, I thought this was funny. I, I lost business uh, uh, that I was quoting on because the client went, the potential client went with a consultant that could. Uh, guarantee that they would have a CE mark by May of next year. And they hadn't even talked to a notified body yet. They hadn't even like made a phone call. And I'm like, I I can't even guarantee you that I can't get somebody to look at your documentation before May of next year. Right. So. So how did that turn out? Did you happen to hear the the, the result? By, I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, no, that, that was just last month. So I'm oh, like, okay, goodness. great. You found somebody that lied to you, you know, basically. Yeah. Well, good luck, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, at least they'll get their money back with that guarantee. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. maybe. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, so I'm curious. So we got the T plus now. Are there any any T minus dates that we should be thinking about? Or um, obviously, this is the big one, the T plus. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just that if you don't have a relationship with a notified body yet, you know you're already uh, almost too late. Um, and you just can't make any commitments to or marketing plans for the EU right now in terms of, of timing. I've talked to a few companies that they've looked at the, the EU MDR requirements and they've actually made the strategic decision just to let their CE mark go and they're just going to pull out of EU. Have you seen things like that? And what are your any any comments or thoughts? Um yeah, so I I uh, have seen you know a lot of small companies they just are, are choosing not to go to market in the EU, um, but then I've even heard that companies you know as large as Nestle are withdrawing up to twenty percent of their product lines that are you know almost like commodity products because the value and the return on revenue is just not there to maintain MDR. What's the What's the main thing that holds people back? I mean, obviously it's a it's a big documentational challenge, but what would you say? I don't know if you could pick one or probably half a dozen. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Um, I think it's it's the the cost and also the clinical data challenge. You know, it used to be that the FDA had, had the reputation of requiring a lot of clinical data um, being more difficult to get to market than a notified body. And under MDR, that paradigm has uh, shifted to where, um, you know, companies are bringing their product to market in the U.S. first because of the burden of the clinical data in the EU. I mean, I have a client that makes wound drain catheters. It's just a silicone tube with a hole in the end. That's it. They were up classified to class three under MDR. And they have to have full out clinical trials for a product that's been on the market 40 or 50 years. Holy cow. I mean, that's crazy to think about. I mean, to go to class three. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the clinical aspects are, are really causing a lot of challenges for folks. Um, I mean, what? how are you seeing companies address that, though? I mean, because I think for a lot of folks, this is like of all the requirements of the MDR, this is probably the newest part of MDR that that maybe you know they had bits and pieces of but generally they 
they didn't have the whole post-market clinical follow-up and, and and all those things once you get to market. I mean, some of those products obviously require clinical data to, to get to market, but what are companies doing? How are they addressing this in an effective way? I think that the companies who have got, um, you know, kind of newer or novel technology where they were going to have to do a clinical trial for one purpose or the other are in better shape than those with that longstanding um uh, you know, te- technology that's been on the market for, for decades. Um, I, don't, I think that a lot of those commodity products still haven't figured out how they're going to cross that bridge because you can't, you know, U.S., you can use real-world evidence. That's not a thing in Europe. And they don't really consider, like, your complaints or lack thereof to be, it, it's just a small portion of what they consider uh, clinical clinical data. You, you alluded to the timeline or being able to or not being able to get your CE marking with the guarantee. What do the timelines look like right now? So the actual review um, is taking uh, the better part of a year or more. Um, so 12 to 12 to 18 months. And then once you get you get through your review, it's still taking another six months or more to get your certificate issued by the notified bodies and the competent authorities. Okay. Wow. Go I ahead. know leading up to the EUMDR, one of the, the big challenges then, and I suspect this is still the case, but l- very limited number of notified bodies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can remember, you know, just being a few months out and it was like, there's still only right around 10 notified bodies. How many notified bodies? I think uh, they're are, up to 28 people? now. You know, and that's down from, you know, almost 130, you know, that were, were originally designated underneath the MDD. So, so there's um, still a bottleneck there, right? 100 yeah. percent. And the competent authorities aren't getting notified bodies designated. You know, you would think that as we were getting closer to the certificates expiring, that they would be, you know, kind of pushing the notified bodies through to accommodate the certificates and make sure that, you know, Europe doesn't lose access to important products. But but that's just not the case. So what do companies need to be doing right now? I mean, I, I guess if somebody doesn't have that put together, there's a drop dead date. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to go or to stay on the market, I think that's the first decision is to do a market analysis to find out if your revenue model is going to ex- to support the year-over-year cost because you've got notified body fees that are uh, recurring. You've got authorized representatives, and now you have to have a UK authorized representative, an EU authorized representative, a Swiss representative. You might have to have Northern Ireland if you don't have the right combination of marks and representation. And so just the third party fees alone are exorbitant. Um, So the the first thing is to do that market analysis. And then if they decide that that Europe is still something that they want to do, the second, you need to get in line with a notified body. Most, if you don't already, if you're not already an existing client, they're just not taking new applications. They'll say, you know, call us back in a year and see where we're at. So I'm curious, you know, let's let's say I'm a company that has products on the market and, you know, I'm a little late to the game, but, you know, I'm, I'm like following Michelle's advice. I'm going to reach out to my notified body or what have you. And they're like, well, here's our timeline. And it's, you know, 
when I add it up, it's going to be you know beyond that May 2024 date. Is there any recourse or is there any like, can I, you know, if I'm in the queue with my notified body, can I, you know, present some sort of, you know, information or documentation to the competent authorities that says, hey, we're working on it. Keep our, can we keep our products on the market or is it just going to be, you know, either you got it or you're, or you're out of the market? You know, I think that that's the the big unknown, and that's where everybody, I think, is still speculating a lot. The competent authorities haven't published any type of thinking or transition plan beyond the, that the certificates are just not going to continue to be or are not going to be viable. And they haven't published any ideas on what are they going to do with the product in that limbo period either. Like, are, are we just going to all of a sudden in 2024 have you know, Europe without, you know, important life-sustaining devices. I mean, you know, as simple as a wound drain catheter is, you know, try an open heart surgery without one. Exactly. I mean, I think that's like, to me, like the bigger, I'll say gotcha, I guess for right now, it doesn't seem like anyone from, from more the, the, the competent authority side of things is looking at this, the impact on the quality and, and, and the healthcare system in Europe uh, because of this. And, and it's like, there's got to be, surely someone somewhere has done some sort of analysis that says, hey, this is the potential issues that we could see in Europe. I mean, I hope anyway, because, you know, then you can see, can you imagine the United States becoming a destination for, for medical tourism? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's great. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the problem is I don't know if anybody in the actual government did the analysis, you know, I'm sure there there's uh healthcare agencies and, you know, an industry has done their own analysis but um, the government in Europe got such a black eye after the PIP scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they were already in discussions about the medical device regulation. But when PIP, ha- PIP happened, you know, they got a black eye for not protecting their own patient populations. And so now they've just gone to, to the opposite extreme um, in an effort to, to try to prove that their patient population aren't guinea pigs, basically for the rest of the world. Well, so one of the things that I, when, when I see these companies pulling out of the EU, just saying, hey, we're going to not let it, you know, we're just going to let it expire. It's not impossible. You know, I, I have some conversations with other people who say, well, once you do EMDR, you'll never go back. So I'm curious where your opinion is. You know, you're a little closer to the, the true regulation. What is your opinion of the, the actual regulation? Um, I think if you're going to bite the bullet and do MDR, I think, probably other geographies are going to be a breeze in comparison, you know, short of maybe I think Japan is still pretty rigorous. Um, but, but, you know, definitely to get a MDR or CR, CE mark, I think will definitely set you up well to enter the U S and Australia and some of the other markets. It's just the sustainability of it. And, you know, and that's another big difference with how products come to market in the U.S. is that, you know, it's a, it's a linear flow. You, you put your submission in, 510K, de novo, PMA, it goes through their review process and it comes out and your device is cleared. And unless you make changes that require you to do a new submission, 
you don't go back through that process. But in the EU, you're going through that process, uh, you know, with your quality management system and to, a, to an extent product changes annually and then a full, re, a full recertification every three years. Wow. You know, there's yeah. also no such thing as grandfathering underneath the EU. So like if a technical standard, say, you know, 60601 for electrical safety changes from the time you first got your product authorized, you have to redo all that testing. So okay. it's, a, it's a living system. So you do have to follow the updates to other international standards. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yep. Well, Etienne, I think you started off by saying something along the lines, sort of comparing and contrasting EU versus US. Is my memory correct? I yeah. know it's only been a few yeah, minutes ago. So the but... challenges of the two. Yeah. <laughs> All <laughs> right. So we talked a lot about the, the EU side of things. I guess, what are some thoughts? How, how would you compare and contrast that with, with FDA? So there, there's a couple of things that, that you, you have to keep in mind is, you know, we just talked about the kind of more, a more linear submission process. But then the other part of that is the quality management system, which is where you guys really uh, play and, and help out. Um, and, and that's the, you know, in Europe, you have to have an ISO 13485 certification for your quality management system, which is yet another fee and certificate and hoop, you know, hoops to jump through things to maintain. And those audits are, you know, annual. And you have to get, if you have critical suppliers, that certification body will be going in and auditing your critical suppliers quality management system as well. Whereas, um, and, and all of this has to kind of all come together at the same time. Well, in the U.S., they don't even really require a quality management system until you put your product into commercialization. And so I see all kinds of startup companies that don't have design controls, that didn't follow a a process, you know, and they were having to reverse engineer their entire, you know, documentation once they put a quality management system after their submissions in place. So it's just very much more of a living you know, you're going to maintain a lot of certifications. You're going to maintain a lot of testing and, and you're going to have to keep your product. You know, you might have to redesign your product as you go as well in Europe to make sure it can pass these uh, changing uh, performance standards and expectations. So it sounds like, well, even it's even though it's a little easier possibly, you know, for to go through the FDA, you could potentially have a better product coming out if you started going the EUMDR process. It's potentially based on the design controls and the reworking of some of the documentation after you go to go to market. Is that kind of accurate what I'm hearing? Or Your product is going to be living and it's going to be considered whatever the EU has turned to be state of the art because that's how that they define state of the art is with technical performance standards. I think it's very interesting when ISO 14971 was updated in 2019, they added a definition for state of the art for the first time. And guess what state of the art is not state of the art. It's like, it's like by this, we do not mean the most technologically advanced or progressive we mean generally recognized 
uh, safe. Yeah. I mean, yeah, some of these these terms are, are definitely interesting when you apply them in the medical device industry. Because, you know, a standard, um, by the time a version of a standard is published, it's usually after, it, it's definitely not, you know, current, most up-to-date way of doing things per se. I mean, that standard probably took a couple of years at least for that to be revised. So, yeah, there, sometimes there's things that, that are you know, state of the art from a standard perspective, which, you know, is, is the opposite of that definition for sure. There are some things about the EUMDR. I mean, the fact that, that there, there's an, we'll say an attempt to implement these, these policies so that you treat your products as a living thing. Right. I, I like that part of it. I like the total product life cycle approach. I mean, I'm a big fan of, of making sure your design controls and your design history file and your risk management file always are a current representation of your product but you know it's that flip side that that the, the the way in order to do to do that or to demonstrate that is a little bit onerous you know so it's like how can we find that balance in between mm-hmm. yeah and the ongoing cost of you know staying up with those performance standards as well you know so that that's that's yet another layer of cost and expense um you know i think you know, you've mentioned my, my LinkedIn and, and you guys have probably also seen the different stages of regulatory grief that I talk about. <laughs> and I think that, you know, I think a lot of companies are still in the denial stage. And I think that that until we get into an MDD, uh, MDR where MDD and MDD certificates don't exist anymore, and have that that reality just it, it, it just is the reality. I think that there's gonna be a lot of companies that that continue to just denial and hope is not a regulatory strategy, you know. But they 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 seem to be running their businesses like it. <laughs> so how do you I'm just curious my own personal question. So I'm curious how you walk people through those uh, different stages of regulatory grief. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, it's a lot of handholding, um, and there's a, just a lot of, uh, I use what I call a submission risk matrix for those, those areas that, you know, I can't get the, the client to, you know, stomach or buy, or, or they just want to take, you know, take the risk and let's see what happens, you know, and like, so I'll keep this running list of these things that we can't you know, get agreement on and ideas for them to, for a potential mitigation and, you know, what can happen with their, their submission. And we all have to at least, you know, agree to disagree on, on those points. Um, but like, just for instance, biocompatibility and under the MDR and under uh, changing expectations with FDA, there's no such thing as a well-known material anymore. Like you are going to have to do uh, a significant testing on your own device. And you can't just say this is made out of silicone and silicone has been used in medical devices for 50 years. Hmm. But still have clients who insist on, hey, let's let's write a rationale about these are well-known material materials. Sean, you know, you've been doing uh, helping companies with this transition now. Well. Ever since 
I assume uh, it was announced this was going to happen. <clears throat> uh, I hope you got some success stories or, or at least some, some examples of, you know, some, you know, instances where the company, like they did it, you know, and this is how they did it. This is how they went into it. I guess share some of those insights with folks so that they can see it's, you know, it's easy to push it off and say, Oh, you know, maybe something will change. And I'm hoping, right. But like you said, hope's not a strategy for those that are, you know, being proactive about this. What are, what are some things that you've seen go really well? Well, and first let me just even put some context around how many MDR certificates are even out there. Only 1% of the certificates that were issued under MDD have been, have, have the, do those same people have got an MDR certificate. So we're not talking about, there's not this huge amount of people with success stories because so few have, have gone through it at all. Um, and I think that there were 18,000 certificates issued under MDD and only 1% of those have made it all the way through MDR. So, you know, I think it, it's just, it's not going to be fast. You know, if, if you do it, you have to like really own it. Um, You know, you can't uh, rely on rationales. I think the people that, you know, almost treated their product like this is brand new and almost started scratch with their, their testing, you know, I think have succeeded more easily, uh, more easily like that. <laughs> yeah. that, that people who were trying to, you know, just ride that wave of, of, well, we've had a CE mark for forever. Um, it's not going to really be that different, you know, um, that, that, that did much more than just update their GSPR checklist and call it done. So, yeah, I think it's going to be the testing, the not making rationalizations, not making justifications, not uh, and having everything done when you turn it in and not waiting for the notified body to tell you that something's inadequate or turn something in in advance of your testing being completed or updated. You know, it, it takes a village now to write a submission. It used to be your regulatory people, you know, would go in a hole and, you know, they would come out, you know, with maybe an engineer and the clinical person. And it, it was really, but now to write, to properly prepare technical documentation, it is truly a cross-functional effort. And it's going to require a lot of very, in-depth expertise in things like biocompatibility, sterility, packaging. So, you know, it's very much of a, a, it's going to take a village now. It's not just a, you're not going to be able to silo your regulatory people. So at least one of the things that I'm kind of taking away from this is there's definitely a more robust testing requirement. Um, So regardless of whether you're 304 stainless steel or silicone, um, you're going to have to start really be thinking and focusing about bio- biocompatibility, cytotoxin, things like that, uh, right. or at least an assessment of those. Um, okay. Yeah. Interesting. What other things would you say are stark contrasts that if you haven't, maybe you could get by without it in the FDA, you're not going to get by without this in the EUMDR. Anything else come to mind? It may depend on the device too, I suppose, but yeah. Um, yeah. So those are the biggest things that we've already covered. I think that, you know, a big difference 
and how that you have to approach not just the regulatory agencies, but your strategy is in your fundraising. Um, I see, you know, two mistakes that people are still, you know, I'm in a lot of angel groups and I'll still see pitches that, oh, we're going to go to Europe first. And I'm like, 2017 called and wants this regulatory strategy back. <laughs> or I see people that are, are pitching and that they are saying the right things. They're aware, you know, of uh, that they're going to bring it to market in the U.S. first. But then I'll hear their investors say, oh, 20 years ago, I had a huge exit because I had this great, you know, uh, European business. And why aren't you going to Europe? And I'm, I'll call investors out. I'm like, you are just, you know, giving this person bad advice that's going to cost you to lose your money. Um, because again, you know, 20 years ago called and wants its strategy back. It's just not, it's just not a thing. Yeah. There was a, a period of time, um, a few months ago that it, I had a conversation with a few folks, both from us and, and EU and basically what they said then. And I suspect that that's probably still very, very true now is startups, especially they're not going to Europe first. Uh, it's not, it's not the more favorable market. I mean, used to, like you said, you know, 10, you know, 15 years ago, Europe was a more predictable path because I, you know, I, I could understand it a little bit more clearly, but it just seems strange that, that today FDA is the more predictable path, you know, and uh, who'd have thought that, you know? So, so I, uh, I do agree. I think all these startups, if they're, if they're thinking about, you know, and I guess folks, if you're listening and you're thinking about going to market in Europe first, you might want to reach out to someone like Michelle because uh, she can help educate and inform you of, of the perils of that, that thinking. So mm -hmm. beware. Yeah. And if, if, you know, one of the other things I'll just throw out since we're maybe talking advertising, for example, for Michelle specifically, we're actually going to have a, a panel at the true quality conference in San Diego, where we actually talk about the go-to-market strategy EU versus the U S Michelle's one of the highlights of that panel. Um, I couldn't tell you who else is on that panel right now, but definitely check that out. Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes. You can you can look a little bit more into that. I have this conspiracy theory about that it's like a macroeconomic model because if you think about the the people in that are large enough that sit down at the tables with the regulators and are part of. The, you know, the companies that are sitting there helping to drive these changes. It's not the small to mid-sized companies that are that are defining the future of regulations. It's these bohemists that already control large parts of the market. Well, they don't do their own innovation anymore. They're not doing their own, for the most part, design and development. They acquire startups and their technology, and that's how they, they build their, their product portfolios now. Well, before, you know, a company would have this global commercialization strategy to get its valuation up. And now, if the regulations prevent you from being able to go into a global commercialization strategy, and the valuation of your company is based off of a U.S. market share alone, you know, what does that do for your, your multiple and your exit strategy? And all these companies can get these 
these these startup companies for virtually a song compared to what they might have if they had a true global presence. That's so true. I think it's uh, now more than ever challenging to be a startup in the medical device space. I mean, you know, I've been in this space since uh, 98. So I guess that's 24 or so years. You know, I can remember back in the day, you know, maybe let's go probably 15 or maybe 20 years ago that there was decent amount of funding uh, available uh, for startups uh, at that point in time. But that that's, it's not non-existent, but a lot of that has gone away or it's, it's being invested much later in, in the company's maturation process. I mean, the, the cash to cover seed uh, funding and things like that, seed capital and that sort of thing is harder and harder to come by. So that friends and family and, and you know, the, that early angel or two uh, round has to carry a company much, much further. And now it's compounded by, you know, this, this uh, new t- twist from a regulatory perspective where essentially, you know, most companies, not all, but they look at the U.S. and Europe almost as a 50-50 um, market share, you know, of, the, of their total opportunity. And now you, you cut part of that off. I mean, that's, that's another handicap against against the startup. So I'm sure startups will survive and they'll figure it out. But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of cards that are against them right now. Mm-hmm. I got a, so my question about that, though, is if it is you know, to go back to your conspiracy theory, Michelle, um, if these behemoths are the ones making those, you know, influencing the regulations, which I, you know, totally agree, and they are making the, it more difficult for the startups. But then if they acquire these startups, let's say at a discounted rate, they still have a lot of legwork to do to get that product to those other markets. Or is there a piece I'm missing here? That's the point, right? Yeah. That's the point. That's, that's you know, to, to play along with the conspiracy theory, is, it is, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm big, the big 800-pound gorilla making the rules and I make it so difficult for you to follow those rules, but I like your technology, mm, I'm going to get a deal on that because you can't mm-hmm. survive. Uh, mm-hmm. long enough to make it into those markets, whereas I have the capital and the resources to make it so, you know, so. Yeah. And I help write the rules because I'm doing it. Here. You know, I'm already doing it. We already have the quality management system that's compliant with MDR. We already have our ISO certificate. Don't worry your pretty little head about those things. Mm. Yeah. But okay. I'm not going to pay you for them either. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the startups need to band together somehow. I'm not sure how it's going to work, but <laughs> follow Michelle on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a good idea. What if all these startups could like could form some sort of alliance or something, you know? Yeah, it's it, it's a pipe dream of mine um, that one day, like I want to start like an advocacy group for startups and small companies and, and be that voice and have them organize and you know I've, I've kind of started doing it to a point in the US with you know just trying to get people organized around comments on key guidance documents and putting them on the federal register and so you know I, I think it's just really important that they have the you know you have your say it's, it's the same thing if, if you don't vote you don't you shouldn't get to complain against about public policy right well if you don't right. tell the FDA, when they're asking for comments, if you don't participate in that, should you get to complain about what comes out of it? I think here's another thing that that uh, when I when I share this statistic with folks, oftentimes they're very surprised. Like eighty percent of medical device companies globally have 
50 or fewer employees at those people? Yes. I mean, that's the overwhelming majority of companies are, are small, would be considered small companies. And uh, the to your point, the companies that are making the rules, I mean, there's like 10 of them, right? And they're so friggin' large. That, 2%. 2 yeah. of all medical device companies are those big boys. Yeah. So and FDA calls, calls a company large if they have over 50 com- employees. That to right. FDA is a big medical device company. Right. It's not a big company, but it's a big medical device company. Right. So, you know, I want folks listening because there's a, a at least an 80% chance that if you're listening, you probably work at a, a small medical device company, 50 or fewer employees. We, sh- we need to all band together and have a voice. I mean, follow Michelle to her point. There's guidances that are published often, draft guidances, you know, or federal register where FDA is soliciting comments and feedback. You have that opportunity to chime in. You don't have to work for one of the 2% very large companies to do so. But if you don't say anything, the big boys, they have teams of people that that's all they do is, is focus on that. And if you don't chime in, others will be making the rules for you to follow. And just so you, everybody knows how this comment period works is the FDA has to respond to every comment left in the federal register. It's not that they can just read them and say, oh, that's nice to know, or that's that's something to think about. They have to like actually articulate comment by comment a, a response to it. I didn't realize that. Interesting. So, I mean, I can just think of a few draft guidances that are still out there. I think the QMSR and the cybersecurity, which I know there's a lot of discussion around right now. So, um, yeah, that's a lot of opportunity. <laughs> QMSR comment period is open until I think the third week of May, like May 24 or so. So, um, very cool. Any other thoughts or comments you'd like to just give the listeners or um, recommendations before you see them in live, of course, but yeah. So on my website, I have got a market analysis tool and a regulatory pathway assessment. And those, if you are thinking of going to Europe or staying there and you have not done that, you know, download those, give me a call, put some time on my calendar and let's talk about it from, you know, first a business perspective, but then a regulatory perspective to, to see if this, you know, is something that makes sense for you. Awesome. We'll include those as a, a link in, in the show notes as well. Very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, John, anything to add? All right. Um, oh, good. Thank yeah. I look forward to seeing everybody in person. <laughs> Me too. It's still a thing. <laughs> 2022, we can get back together. I'm really excited. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast with Michelle Lott. Check the links in the show notes. We mentioned a few different things throughout the episode. This is powered by Greenlight Group. If you are in the medical device space, looking for a quality management system or are just trying to get to market. Greenlight.guru is the only medical device success platform that was designed by medical device professionals for medical device professionals. So head over to www.greenlight.guru to check out more. We will see you all next time. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Guru, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. 
They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 13485 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact greenlight.guru today.